0: And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful, Lord, that you have uh, made yourself known to us. And uh, we pray now. Do we read and study your word together that you would teach us, that you would come and uh, do your work in our hearts, Lord. Where we need conviction, would you convict us? Where we need to be comforted, would you comfort us? Uh, Lord, would you just have your way? Uh, We pray that you'd remove uh, distractions from our minds and hearts. You'd allow us together to focus on you and what you want us to hear this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6 with me. Verse 22 is where we're going to be starting. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, just want to say hello and welcome. And I'm so glad that you're here as we're uh, continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John, which we've been in for about, I think, like 20 weeks now. We've just been walking through the Gospel of John. We're now in Chapter 6, and we have this little series within a series, okay? We're calling it Provider and Provision, where we're taking a look at Chapter 6 as a whole and all that Jesus is saying to us there. And as you see from the image, we're going to be talking a lot about bread today. Can I get an amen? Yes! Bread, all right. Beautiful, John six twenty two. And hey, as we um, approach the Bible, we can expect it to do a number of things. We can expect Scripture to, of course, comfort us. Uh, we read in Scripture of the sovereignty of God, His power his authority over all things, how all of history is in his hands, and we can take comfort that he's a refuge for the weary. He invites us to rest. We uh, read in Scripture who we are, right, that we are loved by God, forgiven in Christ, invited into the family of God, secure in him forever. Right? These great passages that give us great comfort. But also, as we approach Scripture, we know it does more than comfort us. Often when we approach it, it challenges us, it convicts us, it confronts us, right? Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So think about that. All Scripture is useful for uh, correction, which means that in Plenty of ways we are in error and need to have our lives or our thinking sorted out and corrected. Uh, scripture is useful, the passage says, for teaching, meaning there are ways that we are, are blind or misdirected and we need to, to learn what is true. Uh, scripture is useful for rebuking. Can you turn to the person next to you and say, you might need to be rebuked this morning? Go ahead. Yeah. Scripture is useful for rebuking. There are times where God says, no. <laughs> Here's actually how it is, right? And we need to change our way or how we think about it. And this is not because God is unkind or grumpy, but he does this because he loves us. He wants us to find life in him. He wants us to grow to maturity. And so like a good father who disciplines, he teaches and corrects and rebukes and so on, all because... He loves his children. Now, one of the ways scripture does this, confronts, challenges, convicts, is it, it kind of holds up a mirror to those who read it. Right? And we see so much of ourselves on display in the text. When we see stories about Jesus and the crowds or the disciples, we see how the crowds or the disciples act and uh, respond to Jesus. And let's be honest, we see plenty of ways that they uh, l- respond in less than ideal ways. Right? And how we respond in less than ideal ways. And Jesus uh, often has to teach us, rebuke us, (laughs) confront us, change how we're uh, responding to him or how we're thinking. And so this morning we see exactly that. As we see this crowd clamoring around Jesus with their demands and with their questions. We're going to see Jesus kind of bring them along and help them understand some key things about following him. We'll see where the story picks up in verse 22. It says the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one way had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, again remember that. Last couple weeks, right? He feeds the multitude amazingly, then he sends his disciples on ahead, and he goes away on a mountain to pray, and then he walks on water, and he meets up with his disciples, okay? So the the crowd that was fed uh, realized the next day he's not there, okay? Jesus is gone. Disciples are gone. So, verse 24, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Okay, so again, set the scene here. Uh, Jesus feeds the crowd miraculously. A few weeks ago, this is the previous day, that evening, disciples go on ahead. Uh, Jesus meets up with them on the Sea of Galilee, walking on water through the storm. Now, it's the following day, and the crowd wakes up, and they're like, oh, hey, You know, the guy who gave us free food, he's gone. Um, We should go find him again. Where would he go? So they go in search of him. We see that some more boats join the crowd, verse 23, from Tiberias, this uh, large city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so they join the crowd. They're all like, hey, we got to go find Jesus. So they take boats back over to the other side of the lake to Capernaum, which is sort of serving as like a home base for Jesus and his disciples at this point. And they find Jesus. Okay, verse 25, hey, When did you get here, Rabbi? And what follows in the rest of the text is really this back-and-forth dialogue where they're going to ask questions or make statements, uh, and Jesus is going to respond and teach them. It's kind of this back-and-forth the rest of the chapter. And so we see how he starts off. He doesn't answer their question. Hey, when did you get here? How long have you been here? He's like, "Mm, mm, we're just going to move on to what I want to talk about. Verse 26 says, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Okay, so he's like, I'm not gonna answer that question. We're gonna talk about why you are here. You notice the, the kind of conviction in the text from Jesus, verse 26, he's pointing out their false motives, that they're not pursuing him for the right. Reasons, what's he saying? He's saying, you're, you're pursuing me back and forth in your boats across the sea, not because you saw the signs and, and really see who I am and what that means and what I came to do, but what? But because you had a good meal. You have a stomach full of bread and fish from last night, and you're here because you're probably going to get hungry in a little bit, and you want some more free food, right? Now, the appeal of free food is easy to understand, Okay? Um, emperors in the ancient world or leaders would try and gain the favor of the people and of the crowds by, you know, pacifying them with free food, winning them over. I don't know about you, but I've been to many an event because there was free food there, okay? Anybody else? Right, let's be honest. I know it's more than me, okay? You're like, I don't really know if I want to go, but free food, I'm there, right? Count me in, okay? So we get it. We've We've all been there. But we see Jesus points to, in this situation, it's like, you're not, you're not here really because you want me, because you know what I came to do. You just, you just want more free stuff. It's almost brunch time. You're getting hungry again. He says, you're seeking the wrong things. You're spending your energy pursuing temporary things. You're desiring materialistic uh, gifts, stuff that, that doesn't last or hold. And so instead, verse 27, what does he say? Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. don't worry so much about food, about stuff that's going to be temporary and spoil, and you're just going to get hungry again. Instead, work for or pursue food that leads to eternal life. Right? Don't just worry about temporary things, temporary gains or losses. Bread that will leave you empty again. Pursue food that leads what? To eternal life. And he says the seal of the Father has, is placed upon him. So only Jesus has the approval, the authority from God to give us this eternal life. So he's saying, come to me seeking that. Now, think about it. Throughout the Gospels, we see people come to Jesus with incredible temporary needs. Right, they need to be healed. They're paralyzed. They're sick. They're hungry, uh, and Jesus shows great compassion on them as they come to him. Right, he often he, he heals, he he meets their needs, their temporary needs. He cares about our temporary needs, and often we see at the same time Jesus uses that and says, okay, okay, I get these needs are real, but let me try and help you see a greater need that you have. He doesn't just leave it there in the realm of the temporary. Think about uh, Mark chapter 2, the paralyzed man on the roof, and right, his friends like break open the roof where Jesus is teaching down below, and they're like, why are you breaking through our roof? They break through the roof, they lower their friend down because their friend is paralyzed, they want him to meet Jesus, and Jesus does what? He says what? Your sins are forgiven, there's a greater need to so have then healing, you know, being able to walk. So he forgives sins, and then he, hey, heals him too, right? He, he meets his temporary need, and he heals him, and the man walks out, okay? So Jesus shows us, hey, yes, there are temporary needs. But there are also greater needs, eternal needs, that we should be aware of and come to Jesus for. And so it's understandable that our temporary needs drive us to Jesus. It's completely understandable. or maybe that's, maybe that's why you're here today, right? I don't know, there's some desperate situation you're in regarding your health or a family member's health or a relationship or uh, finances or just something's overwhelming you and you're like, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And so you turn to the Lord. That's not a bad thing. But the Lord wants us at the same time to see, hey, there are also like bigger picture needs that you have eternal realities, forgiveness of sins, life with me that we need in an even greater way. So God meets us and he cares for us in those moments and cares for our needs and he wants us to move us, wants us to understand our deeper need. And so that's an opportunity for us, right, to, to consider our motives, right, like the crowd, to consider our, why, why are we here? Why are we showing up on Sundays? You know, why do we want to be close to Jesus? Is it, is it purely like on a temporary uh, fleeting reason? You know, some circumstance in our life? Uh, a job that we want? Or if I get close to Jesus, he's going you know, to deliver. He's going to answer that prayer for a spouse or for that career change I want or that some, you know, health change in my family. I don't know. And so I'm looking to Jesus for that. Again, not, not bad to bring our needs to Jesus. He cares about us, but are we also realizing our our deeper needs? He says, "Work for food that endures to eternal life. You need to come to me for the forgiveness of your sins and a relationship with me." Now the crowd um, doesn't quite understand. Okay, All right? They don't quite get it, but they they jump back into the conversation with a lot of gusto. Okay, they're like, "Okay, sure, yeah, cool." Verse twenty-eight. Then they ask him. Well, what must we do to do the works God requires? Like, okay, you're talking about uh, working for or pursuing what? Food that endures. We want to, okay, pursue enduring, lasting food. You want us to pursue uh, eternal life. So, okay, like, what work do we have to do to get that food? How do, how do we get that special eternal life food that you're talking about? What does God require? How do we Get that, achieve that, reach that. Just tell us, you know, what work we have to do. We've got our notepads out, just like what, what work we got to do. What does God require? Let's write it down. And here's a question. It's a good question. They misunderstand some things, but at the, at the root, this is, this is the question at the heart of our faith, at the, at the heart of the gospel, right? What, is, what does God require? If we're talking about eternal life and experiencing it. What are the works that God requires us to do so that we can experience it? question we talk about quite often here. Uh, I hope that if you've, you know, been at FBC for any length of time, the answer is already kind of coming in your mind. It's been, been clarified over time. And Jesus shows us in verse 29. It's very simple. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There's the heart of the matter. Here's the work God requires of you. Here's what God wants you to do. Step one, he wants you to believe. Believe in the one that he sent. And notice the play on words there, right? The the only work you have to do is not really a work. (laughs) It's believing in the one who did all the work for you. That's what you have to do. Believe in the one he has sent. Ephesians 2 8 and 9, right? The famous passage that tells us we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Excuse me, this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works. So we're saved by grace through faith, not works. It's God, This is the doctrine of justification by faith. We're justified, we're made right with God through faith in Jesus. Salvation is a gift to be received, not a status to be earned that we work for. You know, jump through the right hoops or act right and God's going to be like, cool, you're in. No, believe in the one he has sent. And we, like the crowd again, we often miss this. We often, because because. So rarely does life work this way, right? So much of life is merit-based, right? Relationships, employment, whatever. It's like you earn it. You work for it. You prove yourself to be worthy, and then you're in or received or whatever. Uh, but with, with God, it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way because we can't earn it or deserve it. It has to be an act of grace, which is what? Unmerited favor. God gives us what we don't deserve because he's kind and gracious and merciful. Now, it's possible when we hear this to, you know, kind of slip into easy believism or or what some, you know, Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. Like, oh, hey, pray the prayer. I've received the gift and then I'm going to just, you know, go do whatever I want for a couple decades until I die. Uh, But we know that that's not what a life of discipleship looks like. And Billy Graham once famously said, yes, salvation is free, but discipleship costs every pen you have. Isn't that true? Jesus calls us to repent, to, to die to ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. And so, yes, salvation is a free gift. We don't earn it, but then in response, we give the Lord our whole lives. We say, it's all yours, Lord. We just have to get the order right. It's not that we live a life of obedience and we obey in order to be saved. It's that we're saved by God's grace as a gift. Therefore, we live a life of joyful obedience in response to who God is and all that he has done. Now, next, there's one more piece of this we have to see in verse 29. Notice, this is big, that we're not talking about just like faith in general, okay? Like in a vague sense, be a person of faith Trust that things will work out. God's like, hey, just, I don't know, you know, believe in the universe or, heaven forbid, yourself. You know, like, don't, it's not, we're not talking about self-belief. We're not talking about just faith in general or in a vague sense. What does verse 29 say? Believe in the one he has sent. Okay. So we're talking about faith in Jesus, right? Jesus has to be the object of our faith. He's the one we put our trust in. He's the one that we believe in. That makes all the difference. But think about it. When uh, you sit down in a chair, you sit down, we've used the, the chair illustration before. It's a great illustration, uh, if I say so myself. I guess I didn't make it up. But when you sit down in a chair, okay, what needs to be strong, the chair or your faith in the chair? The chair needs to be strong, Right? The chair needs to be sturdy. If you sit your behind down in some rickety, broken down chair, I don't care how much you believe in that chair, you're going to fall, right? You're going down to the ground. But if you even have weak faith, small faith, struggling faith in a really strong, sturdy chair, you can sit your behind down in that chair and you're going to be safe. And it's going to hold you, it's going to be secure. And so it's not a matter of how strong our faith is. It's a matter of how strong the object of our faith is. And, of course, with Jesus, the object of our faith is very, very strong. Eternally so. He will hold us. And so we are to believe in Jesus, even with weak faith, even with small faith, even with new faith, even with stumbling faith. It's the object of our faith that matters. We believe in Jesus. Our Savior sent by the Father, born of the Virgin Mary, the promised Messiah that all the Old Testament pointed forward to, the one who had come and crushed the head of the enemy and the serpent as Genesis 3 foretold, the true Passover lamb from Exodus, the second Adam, the one greater than Moses, the greater king from the line of David, the greater redeemer like Boaz, our great high priest the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who would bear the sin and punishment for sin of his people, the risen one who conquered the grave, rose again, he is alive, the risen king. It's only when we put our faith in him that we receive eternal life, forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God. And so Jesus holds out this simple invitation for us. Believe, right? We put our trust in him and follow him. Now, it, it's, it's about to get really good here in the text, people. Uh, it, it's it's going to get so good. Okay, it's, it's crazy. Okay, so the crowd's like, okay, cool, 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 cool. We hear you. Uh, believe, great. Verse 30. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat okay, you, you track, it. this This is so good, You guys so good, believe in the one he sent, okay, great, yeah, sounds like you're saying, Jesus, that's you, okay, we're picking up on that, you're saying someone pretty important, This you're, you're this one, you know, that is sent from the Father, so um, what sign will you give us, you know, prove it to us, like, you're, you're making these big claims, so we, we want to know, you know, is this true, after all, you know, look at him kind of you know, verse 31, Moses, after all, gave our ancestors bread. You know, they got to eat some bread from heaven. So, you know, we were thinking maybe you could do something like that. You know, give us some more bread. So what, what sign are you going to do? You know, they got bread. Maybe we could, you know, bread and, you know, butter and steak. I don't know. Let's just, you know, up it a little bit here. Now, so, it's so good. Okay, so if, we, if, we, if we just helicoptered in, like, uh, out of context, right? We just hel- helicoptered in right to this page of the Bible, this verse, and we knew nothing else. We would say, like, okay, you know, I'm tracking. Maybe this is a reasonable request of the people. The crowd's like, wow, you're saying you're someone pretty important, right? You're claiming to be, a, you know, the one sent from God and claiming to be this one greater than Moses. Like, wow, this, okay. So, like, you know, show us, help us believe. We, You know, prove it to us. We'd be like, okay, I, that's a reasonable request. You know, I'm tracking with you. But, but, right, can we just, like, zoom out? Just... Just a little bit, just like a few verses, like less than 24 hours previous. What what just happened? Think about it. less than 24 hours, the previous day, they're miraculously fed by Jesus. Jesus takes a few loaves and a fish, and he feeds the crowd of five thousand plus. And so they just experienced this amazing sign in the wilderness, miraculously fed. They ate this full meal. They just had a sign. Less than 24 hours previous. And we know that, again, this crowd, it's not like, hey, well, maybe it's a new group of people. No, we know this is many of the same people from the previous day. And they're like, hey, that, you know, thanks. That, you know, but that wasn't really enough, Jesus. You know, like one meal was fine. But, like, we're going to need you to do that again to really, uh, you know, make us believe in you. It's great. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. Now, okay, to be fair, um. You know, there's some Jewish tradition and thought that when the Messiah comes, uh, there were these, like, storehouses of manna in heaven. It's like God's got, like, you know, Costco warehouses of bread up there somewhere. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to open them up. And there's just going to be, like, manna coming down, abundant blessing. And so maybe they were like, hey, sure, you did it once, Jesus. But, like, hey, the Messiah is supposed to really, you know, open up those, you know, Costco deliveries of bread. So we're really going to need you to do this again. If you're claiming to be greater than Moses, then now would be the time, you know, to to prove it. At least, like, duplicate it. You don't maybe have to do it for weeks on end, but, like, today, could you do it again, you know? They're like the hobbits in Lord of the Rabbits talking about second breakfast, you know what I'm saying? They're like, sure, you know, one miraculous feeding was great. But what about the second miraculous feeding? You know, can we see something like that? So good. <laughs> okay, but for some, think about it. Check it out. Even if he did it, even if he, he gave in to their demands, which he doesn't, it wouldn't be enough. Okay, think about it. Later in John 12, verse 37, it says of the crowds this. Even after Jesus had performed, how many? So many signs in their presence. They still would not believe in him. Think about it. People didn't believe, but it wasn't because of a lack of signs. It wasn't because of a lack of evidence. Isn't that, that amazing? I mean, how many of us today either are thinking or have thought or know people who would say, you know what, if God's real, he needs to like really step up his game and prove it to me. You know, if God's real, he should show me. He should answer my prayer in this way. If God's real, he should really let me know. Walk through the door, and some under, like if God's real, then boom. Here, here's the demand. Here's what it needs to look like. But think about it, like people in Jesus' day, saw Jesus with their own two eyes, and saw many signs, many miracles, and they still didn't believe. It shows us that our unbelief, our reluctance to come to Jesus. It's often not because of a lack of evidence. It's not because of a lack of signs. And the, think about it this way the Bible shows us, and um, modern news media outlets show us, that you can, uh, two different people can look at the same event and walk away with some pretty different interpretations of said event, right? Okay, so, so we can look at the same thing, the same evidence, the same event, and people will interpret it differently. And so, in light of that, what needs to change, right, is not the event itself, necessarily, or the evidence that we have, but is our perception. What we want to see, what we're willing to see, what we'd consider being true or real, are our perception. And so when it comes to Jesus, hey, it, I'm all for asking questions and exploring, and reading, and studying, and thinking, like if Christianity is true, it can handle your questions, okay? So bring the questions, and the concerns, and the doubts even, and let's work through them. We need to, especially if you're new to the faith, or new to church, you're like, what's this Jesus thing all about? I don't even know. Yeah, take time to study, and read, and explore, and, and see what Jesus is saying. But for many of us, we reach a point where it's like, okay, we've, we've seen enough, Right? We've seen what we needed to see not to, to be able to make a decision, and Jesus invites us to, to trust in him and not, not hold out right, for, for more signs, but be willing to see what he's already shown us. And so for us, maybe again, a first step for you, uh, depending on where you're at, is to say, okay, I'm willing to reconsider how I look at the world. Right, especially if you're coming in you know, from like a modern, kind of skeptical, you know, secular approach where you're like, I don't really believe in miracles or I don't know if miracles are credible or I don't know if the supernatural stuff exists, especially if that's you and you're kind of you know, categorically ruling out so that some of these things could happen. If that's you, the invitation is to, to reconsider. Could it be that God doesn't need to you know, kick down the door in some, some new and specific way for you to trust him, but that you might be needing to reconsider the evidence that God has already shown? Could it be that we we walk around in, like, seriously, a a transcendent world where there are signs of God's presence, signs of transcendence all around us every day if we're willing to see them? As we think about the simple fact of creation, that something exists at all. As we think about the, uh, the expanse of the cosmos, and even modern science confirming the Big Bang, that the universe had a beginning point, it lines up so hard with Genesis 1. As we think about just the, uh, the work in our own hearts, right? Our own longings for more, our own longings for justice, for peace. Our own sense of morality, right? That there are shoulds and shouldn'ts. There's a moral law in this world that transcends just our culture or our upbringing, right? So how do we explain morality? How do we explain even things like humor and beauty and art and our desire and our, uh, our hopes that we are a people who hope and look forward and long for things. I mean, how do you explain that? those are all signs of, of transcendence, all signs of the existence of God, if we're willing to see it? Now, Jesus responds, verse 32, he said to them, very truly I tell you, It's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Yeah, I told you we were talking about bread a lot. Okay, bread, 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 bread. Okay, lots of Bread. He's, he's not going to give them the sign, right? He's like, you've, I'm not going to give you another example. And he, he does what a good rabbi does here, okay? He, he takes their, they're quoting scripture. They're like, hey, we're talking about Exodus, and we're talking about how quote ate manna in the wilderness. And they're like, hey, you know, Moses gave us the bread. And so he's taking their quotation of scripture and showing them, hey, you're kind of misunderstanding some things. He's going to correct them, going to expound the application here. And he says, hey, first of all, it wasn't Moses that gave your ancestors the bread. It was God, so let's make sure that the Father gets credit for that. Okay, God gave you bread from heaven. And in fact, my Father is giving you true bread from heaven, right? There's something even, even more important than manna and, and bread and temporary bread, as we've been talking about, right? There's this, this buildup here. There's something bigger. He's trying to get us to understand. Verse 33, the bread from heaven giving life to the world. He's trying to say, hey, don't just think about physical bread. There's more we're talking about, this bread that gives life to the world. Now bread and manna, in, even in, in, in Jesus' day, could be understood metaphorically, right? The people could talk about, you know, the manna from heaven being, um, yes, it was the bread in the Old Testament, but also it could refer to like the wisdom of God or the Torah or the word of God, okay? So in some metaphorical sense, it could be understood. And Jesus is trying to help them see, that's right, it's, it's a metaphor, it's pointing you to something, but not a thing, a person. Okay, the bread is not talking about just bread or just the Torah or just the wisdom of God. It's, it's talking about a person. Now verse 34, look again, the people respond kind of like the woman at the well. Remember the woman at the well when Jesus is talking about living water? And he's like, hey, I've got this living water. And she's like, cool, you know, give me your fancy water that'll quench my thirst with your electrolytes and, you know, pH balance so I don't have to keep coming back to the well. Like, I'll take your fancy water, right? In the same way, they're like, cool, hey, like, give us this, you know, fancy life-enhancing special bread you're talking about. Like, we'll take some of that eternal life bread. And then he, he responds and he kind of brings it all together. It's like, you're still not quite getting it. Here it is, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So here we see this massive declaration of who Jesus is. Think about, it. Think about the buildup, the miracle of, of the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the multitude, right? And then the people pursue more bread, and Jesus is like, you're kind of missing the point. And they're like, whatever, just give us some of this bread, do the miracle again. And Jesus says, hey, something, something greater than the bread's here, like something bigger, more important. They're like, sure, cool, yeah, we'll take that special bread, uh, fine. And then he says, I'm the bread. Like, that's the point. <laughs> I'm the bread. I'm, I'm what you need. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever comes to me, believes in me, will never be thirsty. That's the point. That's what I'm trying to help you see. He says to the crowd, I'm the bread. I'm the one who came from the Father. I'm the one who can give you eternal life. I'm the provider and I'm the provision. I'm the bread. I'm what you need. Now, if you've studied the book of John before, you know there are these uh, I am statements throughout the book. Uh, seven times or so, Jesus says, I am blank. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. So on. Um, this is the first of those statements that we find where Jesus, his self disclosure, I am the bread of life. The point is what? We have this hunger, we have this thirst, we have these deep needs in our souls. A need to be known, to be loved, uh, to worship, to find what is true. He it says, it's all found in me. That's why I came. Come to me. This invitation. And before, we st- we're basically stopping here this morning at verse 37. Even though We're right in the middle of this section. We're going to, you know, jump in and keep, keep trudging through next week. But for now, I want you to see how he closes in verse 37. Is all who come to me, I will never drive away. I'm like, really, Jesus? Really? Whoever comes to you? you are you sure? Like, Because I know some people in this room and some of the things they've done. Okay, are you, even them? People a few rows over? Or, what about the people we don't like? What are the people who vote different than we do? I don't don't know about them. And you'll never drive them away? Like, even if they come and make a mess of things, like, you're not going to, like, just kick them out or be impatient with them? Like, you'll you'll never drive them away? Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. We're going to talk about the first half of that verse more next week, all those the Father gives me and the sovereignty of God and salvation. But look at just the simple truth. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. What's the entrance requirement? There isn't one. Just come to me, right? Just realize your need. Come to me. That's it. It'll never drive us away. It won't go tired of you. won't go impatient with you. Because your salvation is not, uh, you know, dependent upon you in the first place. You didn't earn it. So by your bad behavior, you can't lose it. It's all based on him. So come to me. I will never drive you away. What grace, what mercy, what confidence we can have just to in Christ. We have a chance just to celebrate this simple truth by taking communion together. Hopefully you got the communion packet.